Welcome back to the peripheral. I first want to thank everybody. My last episode got more downloads than any other episode prior. That's including episode two with Kayla Jane Danger and episode 11, A Tale of Two Errands. But with this new episode, I've broken all records and numbers. So thank you very much. I also want to thank everyone that has donated to me through Patreon. Uh, Yes, you heard that right. I have launched a Patreon. I am keeping this podcast ad-free for as long as I can. Uh, Shelby, Jody, Christine, Kat, Steph, Danielle, Erica, Catherine, and Amanda. Thank you all. I feel like we're reading off names from Wampa Room, Magic Mirror. But uh, it really does help. And... I feel somewhat bad that as soon as I launch my Patreon, I'm late on getting a new episode out, but I did run into some uh, family emergency issues this last two weeks and uh, had to take care of my mother and get her into a physical therapy facility to help her out. I am making private Patreon posts, and my last post, I asked them, what I should do for my next episode. And I gave them a couple options and they chose a male sex worker. So if you want to have a say in, in what I choose for my next episode, go out there and support me and I'll give you perks and, and extra things that I don't even mention in my Patreon. I'm still figuring it out and bear with me. On tonight's episode, I speak with Ruckus out on the West Coast this episode will be uh, not safe for work. We, we do talk about escorts and sex working, so lots of adult themes going on. He was a pleasure to speak with. He's very well-spoken, very mellow and caring guy, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So here we go. How you doing? <laughs> awesome. I'm so happy we made this happen, by the way. Um, yeah. Sorry it took so long to pin down. Uh, say whatever you want. Um, I'm not going to edit or censor you in any way. <laughs> you can, uh-huh. you know, I'm pretty easygoing. And uh, I don't know if you've listened to any of the other episodes, but but uh, just to give you an idea is uh, it ranges from, you know, I, I had Kayla Jane on talking about why people should pay for porn to... Uh-huh to another one where a guy was buying heroin off Silk Road. But Quite yeah, a range. Exactly. <laughs> um, but when Kayla reached out to me, she's like, hey, uh, I can, I, I know some people. I'm friends with a lot of people. I'm like, cool. I go, I, I wouldn't mind speaking with somebody that works in the sex industry. And she said, do you care if it's a guy? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> it's like, why would I care? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, I guess so many people doing... Uh, a lot of little shows, especially about performers and sex workers, like, you know, so rarely actually consider that it is like a very diverse spectrum of what people are into or providing or et cetera. So, yeah, it's kind of funny to think about. But there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, everything about the industry, blah, blah, blah. And then they realize that there's like a whole gay industry, too, or whatever. And they're like, oh, I like everything else about it. Like, Yeah, yeah. it's the industry and it, it's an umbrella and everything's included. So, yeah. Um, so I guess uh, 
introduce yourself, however you want to be referred to, and um, and tell me what you do. Awesome. Well, my name is Ruckus. Obviously, a work name, and I actually have my hands in a lot of different little aspects of the sex industry itself, from working as a professional dom um, and to some softer kind of escort work, and then of course the porn industry and things like that as well. I'm pretty heavily tattooed, so there's a limited collection of uh, on-camera work or a few companies that are uh, not super stigmatizing against tattooed people. Pretty much just limited to a lot of really kinky shit as far as porn goes, but uh, pretty much run the whole gamut with different uh, private services and things like that as well. There's still industries or film industries in the in the pornography business that don't like tattoos. Oh, absolutely. That's amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, it's slowly opening up in a couple of different ways because of a lot of the newer, younger faces that are starting to get producer positions and things like that. Um, so it does simplify things when you're finally given a chance by someone, despite the fact that a lot of viewers, especially of gay porn, are very into this one or two specific aesthetics. A lot of times, even like a little armband or something on the chest will be enough to like, you know, invoke a a negative comment on your shoot or something like that. Or if you're not just entirely chiseled to where there's just, you know, not a single bit of extra skin or God forbid body fat on your body. And so that being the majority of the gay consumer base with porn, um, at least like according to these producers, it makes it tough for them to really want to go out on a limb and, uh, you know, dare to change things. Like I said, there are a few people who are really, really awesome about it and are always taking those chances with everything like that mm-hmm. and trying to be more inclusive across the board, not just with things like tattoos and piercings. I, I get the whole Greek god and hot woman, whatever. People want to see somebody that's attractive on the screen. I, I get that, but I just, I don't know. My, my wife was working doing in the food service, waiting on tables for a while, and she had to cover her tattoos when she worked in a, you know, maybe an upscale restaurant. But I just would assume that in the other industries such as this, that that wouldn't be such a big deal. So it was just surprising for me to hear you even mention that as a, a deal breaker. But I, oh, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you do more films? Do you do, like, what is your mainstay? What do you do typically on a regular day? Um, well, actually, so sex work only accounts for about half of my total income. Sometimes I'd say between half and two thirds, depending on little dry spells or things like that, where the companies that use me have already done a handful in the last month or two, and then you won't get hit up again for a minute and stuff like that. So I would say the, well, the rest of the work I do is mostly like handiwork and uh, I'm a motorcycle mechanic. Oh, cool. So on an average day of like sex work type stuff for me would probably consist of either going over to kink.com in the city um, here in San Francisco. Like I was booked for something there yesterday and I'm back over there tomorrow mm-hmm. doing a variety of different things. The one for yesterday was uh, like a gay edging type scene and tomorrow I'll actually be uh, submitting to a trans woman, uh, from one of their sites called TS seduction. And, uh, so there's like a pretty broad array of 
you know, there's no average day in it for me. Yeah. Because the same thing with private work, you know, one day I could just be sitting around drinking tea with a client who wants to just kind of like snuggle up and have the rainy day experience. And then, you know, the next day I might be with a client in a dungeon space where I'm like doing a mock crucifixion and whipping him until he can't move. Um, <laughs> so <Yeah>. that works <laughs> pretty, pretty diverse range. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's actually hard to think of like any day as like an average day. Mm -hmm. So there was a big what to do on one of my, uh, Facebook forms the other day where somebody said it, why is prostitute no longer a good term and why and should we use sex worker? And there was a big long discussion about it. So I've heard you refer to it as sex work and not yourself as a prostitute. I, I just wanted to get your insight on that. Well, to me, the word prostitute isn't particularly like it. To me, it's a little bit funny just because it's this very institutionalized bit of language that has just kind of been left over from a lot of what's going on. And you wouldn't just call like it's just such a strictly legal definition of what it is that people are doing and the social stigma and perception around that sort of thing as a profession or a way of getting by or surviving is just so very limited. People think of prostitution and they're like either their mind immediately jumps to things like all these myths around trafficking and how pornography or consensual sex workers are somehow still contributing to the trafficking industry somehow or all of these pretty crazy and offensive misnomers that get spread around by the media mm -hmm. and to me like the word i don't i wouldn't get offended if someone was like oh so you're like a prostitute and i'm like that's a pretty sterile i don't know very narrow description of what's taking place mm -hmm. and it's like you know if somebody that i feel like that's like someone branding themselves as like Oh, I'm actually a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, they're not so, like, oh, these are things I do. This is like what the law would kind of quantify you as doing is yeah. sex work. I'm either on a given day, I could be a dom or shooting porn or whatever it is, but it's a wide variety of different activities. Yeah. And then if I were to undergo like, you know, legal shit around that, then what would be lumped onto me is something like, prostitution or solicitation and things like that. Yeah. It, you know, it's just it, not a thing people generally call themselves. Mm -hmm. it, it's the criminal connotation that is, you know, stuck to the word prostitution and, and people don't see themselves as criminals. And when you think of the word criminal, you think of something bad. So that's the way I, I felt about it. But if you were, you know, say in Nevada where it's totally legal, as opposed to say, California or Missouri where I'm at it's considered illegal so I guess in my you know I do true crime I do uh, analysis on murder cases and sometimes in the police file it says well the prostitute and I'm like okay well she was arrested for prostitution but I wouldn't want to call her or label her a prostitute right know? yeah that's a good uh, way of looking at it it's just like it's the legal term that would be placed onto you yeah it really does not reflect. And there's a lot of like intense class implications and stigma that come from that as well. Mm -hmm. People immediately draw their own conclusions when they hear that term that you're necessarily like 
out working a stroll or any of these things that are just as valid and in need of attention, but not from the people that are going to be further marginalizing these different categories of people. And so like a blanket term like prostitute, I think is a big part of why people try and destigmatize by creating the term sex worker that carries that legitimacy with it Mm -hmm. as an actual, you know, form of employment and exchange of services for goods or whatever it is. And of course, in the world of escorting and all of that, the way we work is they're paying us for time spent. And it's never an exchange of money for particular acts or anything like that. In general, I see some people who do still kind of self-brand as like a prostitute. And it's more from what I seem to see uh, for the edginess factor of it. Yeah. You know, like me calling myself a, a whore or something like that is it just kind of has a little bit of like edgy value to it. And it's just like, oh, that's cool. You're not sorry or ashamed of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's all about uh, reclamation of your own autonomy around these things, you know? Yeah. Well, like most people would not call themselves drug dealers. And exactly. Know, I mean, what how about the guy that was selling weed in Colorado? two years ago and now he owns a dispensary. Do you still call him a drug dealer? Do you call exactly. the, the pharmacy at CVS a drug dealer? You know, <laughs> does, is a pharmacy. Yeah, super, you know, so. Especially if you think about the implications of, I don't know, implying that addiction to something that's been prescribed to you is any more or less serious than something that you had to go come across on your own. You know, mm-hmm. it usually helps paint a good picture of how the person saying it, thinks of you and what you do for a living. Mm. Um, so it can be a helpful little litmus test, but of course everything is more complicated than that. But it's like if someone immediately is like, Oh, okay. So you're basically this like destitute, you know, like smut peddling hooker or something like that. It's like all those implications feel like kind of wrapped up in the term prostitute. I think, yeah, when people label things, they're, I, I feel they're trying to marginalize or place you in this category so they don't need to think about your feelings or your perspectives any longer. Absolutely. And that makes themselves way easier to live with and further dehumanizing someone, you know? Yeah. So when you go out on a date, obviously you're you're going out with men, not women. <laughs> uh, uh, primarily. Yeah. It is... Uh, variety though you cater to all (laughs) uh absolutely there's a lot of fluidity to my own sexuality and things like that and i see no reason to you know limit who i will or won't interact with not only because it's work but also because i can find chemistry or a good connection with anyone pretty much regardless of what they have in their pants or how they present on some narrow spectrum or whatever you want to call it, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I have dates with, uh, plenty of different folks. Awesome. So it's, it's companionship. It's, it's a date. Uh, I I liked your analogy of the, the rainy day experience because we've all had those. Yeah. Just something cozy and comfortable, you know, and it doesn't have to be about lust or sex or any of these things. And like, Of course, most people hire escorts, you know, it's like you're paying for time spent with someone who's as close to a sure thing as 
you know, the world can really provide. Yeah. But I mean, how, I guess, uh, what's your ratio on times you have sex as, as opposed to times where maybe nothing sexual happens? Well, I fall in kind of a specific category with that because between marketing, um, as a top, it also like brings a whole other factor into the game that I'm also a fetish provider because if you're a dom top marketing generally toward toward gay men there are all kinds of scenarios that can play out in the fetish world regardless of who the provider is that are you know don't fit the strict like social definition of what sex is you know like someone goes to see a dominatrix and is getting pegged with a strap on or fisted or something like that they are absolutely having sex, mm -hmm. but it doesn't fit the general, you know, like penis, vagina or mouth or whatever combinations that people kind of use to define sex. Mm -hmm. And so it can be kind of a tough thing because there are, I would say, only about 20 to 25 percent of the time do I end up engaging in something like oral or anal sex with. Uh, a client that isn't either worked into kind of a fetish scenario with a lot of tease or like corporal pain play around it. Um, and that's just has a lot to do with how I look and how a lot of the content that I do make, which at the end of the day, for a lot of private escorts or doms, uh, your, your porn is kind of the best advertising you can get out there because you can run an ad for days. But if people remember you, and then see that, oh, wow, I can actually book time with this person that I've like jerked off to or fantasized about in some other capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's really like the best advertising there is. And that's part of why I don't like uh, bottom to men on camera and things like that, because it's not part of the service that I offer to my clients. And it's not something that is on the table if someone were to book time with me in person. So for someone who is completely naive to these terms uh, dom and top could you just give a brief explanation for that um absolutely so the general kind of binaries that get laid out in the fetish world uh anyway are you have your dominant and your submissive party and someone who is okay doing either depending on what they're getting into that day is known as a switch um which is how i personally identify but you know, between, like I said, with marketing and how so much of what we do in porn is also branding for our private stuff. Um, for those of us that do private work, a lot of porn stars don't. Then on just the general like sex terms, you have top and bottom and things like that. Mm -hmm. As far as the, uh, you know, penetrative party or the receiving party, mm -hmm. whether it's oral, anal, vaginal, etc. And then someone who can kind of go either way, especially um, like here in larger like gay culture, we would just call them verse or versatile, someone who could top or bottom depending on how they're feeling and things like that. So there's a lot of ways that people can kind of float in between these different descriptors, but a lot of what you market yourself as does kind of uh, sell your fluidity or versatility short in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. because a lot of people are specifically looking for a fantasy of being dominated or fucked in some way 
um, or vice versa. They're looking for someone that they can, you know, penetrate or interact with in those forms. Um, so it's just a matter of like which little categories that you kind of dip into. And of course, that's going to be a different service menu for a lot of different providers, but tends to follow some of the same similar routes, especially around fetish work and things like that. I don't know if I've ever been approached um, by a client who wanted to have a session that was a little bit of both or anything like that. You know, I have people who have hit me up, obviously not having read my ad and talk about wanting to tie me up and do this or that to me. And it's like, okay, well, you clearly did not read the article that led you to my contact info and things like that, you know, but for some people they're really into being a pro switch or a pro sub or anything like that. Do, do you think it's more dangerous or could be a little sketchy for somebody that is a sub and going out to people's houses? Is that something that you've even thought about? I would say that my personal history around certain, I don't know, violent elements mm -hmm. of these interactions can, uh, has absolutely colored my opinion about that. And I would not ever want to go do that. Mm -hmm. Personally, it does sound dangerous and risky to me. I know plenty of people who have their communication with a friend or partner kind of buddy system set up in such a way that they feel absolutely safe doing those things, especially people that live in like New York City or very saturated places like that, where it would be easy enough to have a friend hang out in the area or, you know, just keep an eye close by and wait to hear from you and have protocol, uh, which a lot of us engage in anyway with a buddy system. But I only see people doing, uh, so an out call would be like going to the client's house mm -hmm. and in call would be setting up the space for the client to come visit you. I don't know. There needs to be a lot of attention to detail with those things. And I don't know a whole lot of pro subs or anything like that who make out calls. They will generally work out of like a, a dungeon space or a house with a, a madam of some sort and things like that, where there is some safety measures and accountability um, to make sure that things aren't going beyond your actual limits or boundaries or preferences around things. And that, that's just so important if you're going to be giving up control uh, to anyone that you don't know, whether you've been able to screen them or not. Yeah. How uh, do you get uh, new clients every day? How do you screen a new client? Um, it's really difficult with, with gay work because there's such a whole different attitude around being overtly sexual and things like that um, in a lot of larger gay culture. So in a lot of these settings, it's, it doesn't carry the like, oh, well, let me just discreetly email you and you know be really shy and nervous about this sort of thing like a lot of women deal with with their clients. Screening is a lot more difficult on this side of things. And I've kind of talked with a lot of other providers, uh, like gay providers, who are just like, oh, what do you mean screening? I was like, ah, like trying to find like a basic bare minimum of information about the person or if they can give a reference to another provider that they've seen in the past mm -hmm. is super helpful for that. So if they're like, oh, yeah, I actually saw 
Johnny Jackson over here. And then you could contact that person and just be like, hey, uh, so this guy reached out to me um, for a session and had mentioned you as a reference. I was wondering how he was in terms of respect and not trying to, you know, underpay or not pay and things like that. And so it's a good way to, it's kind of like a private Yelp for <laughs> writers to use in regards to John's or clients. Well, it's the bare minimum of vetting somebody to make sure that you're not putting yourself in any harm's way. Um, if it's someone I haven't seen before, then I won't do an out call. Mm -hmm. It'll have to be in a space that I have arranged and have all my safety measures set up around. Mm -hmm. And I generally have them... Uh, send me half of our time together up front, the tribute or donation, yeah. as we'll call it. I've had really good luck uh, with that kind of more or less scaring away a lot of the people who I feel like had other motives. And I've definitely had interactions with people that I could, you know, you get a pretty good idea that they are a risk. Yeah are not actually going to take you at your word for what they say. I guess being kind of lucky, being much physically larger than a lot of well, pretty much all the clients I've ever had, I know provides its own kind of visual deterrent and things like that as well. But, you know, I really can't speak to a lot of folks who are either not in a position to turn down those less secure feeling jobs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those struggles are absolutely a real thing. And there have been times where if I had received a certain email, I would probably give it more consideration than, uh, you know, the rest of the time. I've seen pictures of you. I wouldn't mess with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I guess uh, I would like to know maybe the scariest scenario you've ever put yourself in. And then I want to hear about the best scenario where maybe you have a repeat customer that, you know, or a client that you know, you've really built a rapport with. So the first out call I ever did uh, a few years ago here was uh, this guy who was really into this heavy role play of being a complete worthless, like broken toy, basically, and uh, insisted on being called it as a pronoun. Wow. And he more or less like, well, he was fine as well, but just in any terms of like would speak in the third person and everything like that. And like, it hasn't earned this, has it master things of that nature. And, and the lead up through all the communication that led me to go meet this guy at like a travel lodge or something like that. Um, and my partner had dropped me off and was hanging out in the area. So it wasn't necessarily scary in terms of like, Oh, I'm here completely alone and have no support. But, um, you know, when you go into someone's room, especially in like a generally seedier place and uh, you're really giving up a lot of your control of like even knowing the layout of a space when you go in. And I'm one of those people, like I said, my history around certain other things with violence like outside of this industry have definitely change the ways that I interact with the space when I go into one between making sure you know where all your exits and what you would have to run or step around or over and things like that to get out of a place. Yeah. And uh, it was just a really intense 
first half of that session because there were like a large amount of luggage around in the process of this person crawling around and doing these like intense role play kind of things. They go fishing into a bag like somewhat often. And at this point, I feel like I would have just pretty much dug everything out that we were going to use during our time together and not actually give someone that chance to maybe do something that would surprise you. Just the guy's demeanor overall was very jumpy and nervous and looking around. And it actually, it doesn't sound like anything extreme or anything like that. And I don't consider it to be, but there was a, a lot of like fear and reservations going on through my head every time he would like crawl over and start, you know, like yank something out of one of these bags, which I know he had just traveled and he ended up being absolutely fine to work with. And I would absolutely see him again. But there was just this kind of interesting thing where like, you know, like if someone reaches in their, their jacket when they're like in this interaction with you, you, you don't know what the fuck they're going to pull out. No. Uh, so all these big duffel bags around and things like that, which makes sense for a person who's traveling in a hotel room and has a lot of toys they would like used on them. But it made this really interesting. It absolutely shaped my uh, protocol from then on about making sure that everything was going to be used was out and in plain sight. And I didn't have this person that you like aren't sure if you can turn your back on for a second, which is generally a no-no anyway. But when it comes to some of these more intense types of play, like I was also ashing cigars on his tongue, you know? So like there are plenty of moments where you're looking away for just a second or grab something, you know, that is literally all it can take in some of these other settings. And I've had a lot of friends who have had really nasty experiences and that was literally it. Like I looked away for a second, you know? the fear that came with that was a lot of like newness to that specific sort of situation and not having like my home grounds of a dungeon space that I had booked and et cetera. But you know, there's a lot of nerves that go into it early on too, especially with how many different like police efforts there are to kind of create these stings around consensual sex work and then pretend that they were using funds towards stopping trafficking or whatever. Yeah. Well, but. I mean, it doesn't have to be extreme. What you just described to me actually sounded pretty scary because the guy's got this anxious energy. It's already set you kind of on edge. And then they're going around and pulling unknown objects out of bags. That's enough. That that was That's all that they need access to is to a knife, a gun, a weapon of any kind. And then they have the upper hand and... And unless you really, truly know this person, uh, you don't know what they're going to do. So it's it did sound scary to me when you were describing it, even though nothing happened. And, and I'm glad that you had that experience and nothing happened because it set that tone for you. It set the, okay, now I know what I did wrong and I, how I can correct it to be safe in the future, right? Yeah, and that's that learning curve of our own safety stuff when there's no actual, you know, doing work that's like, generally not considered legal, whether through the escort loopholes or not, mm-hmm. is is tough stuff because you don't necessarily always get a mentor or someone to kind of teach you the ropes that can also be part of your network for taking care of each other and things like that. And a lot of people are blessed with that sort of situation, like community-wise. But when I started doing this sort of work, uh, that was not where I was at. It makes for a strange learning curve with establishing your safety rules and protocols 
-hmm. But I feel very fortunate that, like I said, it was super low key in the end and I would absolutely see that client again. But there was a lot of, like I said, reservation around what was going on and, and that feeling of fear as well, especially just with the legal implications of things and the generally more homophobic aspect of the way a lot of those workers are being hit with different stings or just treated in general when legal stuff comes up around gay prostitution, you know? Who, who do you think gets it worse as far as the law goes? Is it the John or is it the provider? Well, the John receives a lot of stigma and maybe possibly revealed to family or their partner or spouse that they're like engaging in these sort of things. But I feel like the most lasting legal impacts uh, are absolutely falling on the workers because, you know, there are countless stories and uh, actual cases that have arisen, uh, especially around here from the Bay more recently, where there are four different counties that have actually been just cycling through police chiefs, like almost nonstop here in Alameda County for the East Bay is uh, they had to pretty much completely temporarily sign over control of the entire police force um, to a committee of civilians because they were having such trouble finding someone to be their chief that wasn't involved in this massive underage sex worker scandal. There are like probably eight or so different chiefs that have just been immediately resigning or cycled through or one of them committed suicide and it was like this massive scandal around things and you know there are absolutely countless other stories about of age or not these officers taking advantage of and assaulting these workers because they don't see us as human, like most specifically is going to be women sex workers in these situations, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's just like, because that's how they are marginalized already. And obviously someone who's behaving that way is already dealing with some like alpha ego nonsense. And so for someone they already see as inferior, who is then also being seen as sexually available or coercible or any of things in that category is just like absolutely worse for the worker than the Johns. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if, if their charges carried more for the worker than the John. Uh, a worker is going to possibly be a repeat offender because if that's their job, they're going to be doing it. So, you know, a John, right. John, they might get caught once and never do it again because yeah was, it generally yeah. seems to amount to a slap on the wrist for johns mm-hmm. occasionally if it's a higher profile sting or things like that then you know they'll kind of be dragged out on the news and stuff like that which is absolutely terrible as well because yeah. further stigmatizing clients is only going to make people reach out in like more and more unscrupulous ways yeah um and you know reach out or help themselves where they're not permitted. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see what Nevada's doing as better, worse, or helping, hurting? Well, I'm actually from Nevada, mm-hmm. and I think that legalization of sex work is obviously awesome, um, but it is very specific 
what it all applies to over there. So um, outdoor sex workers, like working on a stroll, anything like that, or a street corner, whatever it may be, um, still receive the same stigma and legal persecution that any of the any of the workers elsewhere in the country would. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really only protected in the brothels, and there are some little loopholes that hotels attached to strip clubs are able to kind of do their own thing in. Um, but it, I wouldn't call it a fully decriminalized or legalized model, what they're doing there. It's just something that they acknowledge is a Wild West fucking state, you know, yeah. and that their tourism industry is also thriving because of the availability of sex workers. Mm-hmm. And it's only helpful to them. It really limits the conditions where different women can be doing this work. And a lot of my like private escort friends who still live out there um, in different areas of the state still have the same concern and fear when they go to see a client that it could result in, you know, legal repercussions, whether they're actually having, you know, fluid exchange sex or not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter in the uh, the eyes of the law. No, you can just be going to a basketball game with somebody and them paying you to to accompany them. And that still can be considered solicitation. (laughs) Certainly. Well, that's interesting because I didn't know how it was in Nevada. So I didn't realize that it was kind of a loophole sort of thing. Um, I know in Kansas City, gambling was legalized and it was only legalized on the river. So they had steamboat gambling. But then the casinos realized that if any of your property was over the river, then you would be considered a steamboat. So then you have this huge Ameristar casino with a little dock out over the the, the river. And it's like, well, oh, it's, wow. you know, and then I think they, they ended up changing the laws because they just thought, well, they found the loophole, so we don't care anymore. But that was how it started. So it sounds sort of similar to Nevada with, with sex work is it's not totally decriminalized or legalized. It's there's things in place that allow people to find the loophole and and get away with it. Absolutely. And it's tough because in a lot of those brothels, the only person who's actually making a any sort of profit is the usually the man owning it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had a lot of people close to me treated very poorly by the men in those positions. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just another dollar sign to them. Yeah. And uh, there are obviously going to be exceptions. Like there's a uh, there's a house out there down in the southern part of Nevada, closer to Vegas, that is actually seems like it's starting to push toward being kind of collectively run by the workers, oh. um, which historically is met with a lot of contention around these things. There was a club, uh, collectively run strip club over here in San Francisco called the Lusty Lady that was around for years. And that's how everything was set up. And when this major like strip club chain owner started trying to buy up all these other ones and convert them into more of a cookie cutter club setup, yeah, uh, they were one of the first ones to be targeted and fought it for a long time, but ended up going under at the end of it. So it is difficult because a threat, you know, self empowerment is such a threat to the people who want to exercise their control over you. 
So it's tough because the people trying to do that good groundwork for improving conditions for the workers around treatment or client selection or whatever it is, uh, really gets in the way of big business trying to still operate, you know. And there are a lot of ties between the big casinos and who owns the houses out in the desert and all that stuff. So makes for a pretty complicated situation around that. And I would say it's only marginally more legal than anywhere else, mm-hmm. which sounds like it's similar with your gambling thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's full bore now, but it wasn't when it first happened. And the casinos just, you know, they find their, they have their lawyers to find the way. <laughs> yeah. So I know most people understand why somebody would seek out another and and pay for their companionship or for sex or whatever but i don't think people really grasp that we we all as humans have this craving for human contact so that's kind of what i wanted you to talk about a little bit is maybe a, a repeat client you know or somebody that you've built up this rapport you see that you're actually helping this person in some way Oh, absolutely. I would say about equal number of times across my like what we call boyfriend experience or BFE kind of services and my like fetish services as well. There are people that I know budget all their money carefully for our sessions because it's like therapy for them. Being able to just kind of melt away in your hands and under your control, whether it's in a, you know, a kinky setting or not is like the exact feeling that so many people are willing to pay for. And it really is just about that touch or people who want like some massage work, but aren't even actually interested in like, you know, the conventional happy ending or, or getting off at the end of the exchange. It's just to be touched, you know, therapeutic touch Mm -hmm. is such a real, such a real thing and such a real need. I mean, I, I get massages all the time. Um, I, I have kinks in my back, my legs are always stiff, but there is an element there of just being touched by another human. And I don't care if it's a man or a woman, it's just that, that physical contact of, and it gives you that sense of somebody cares, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's like this sharing of their warmth mm-hmm. that can be life-saving for people who don't live with access to that, um, And, you know, the way stigma makes people feel like they're somehow disgusting or pathetic if they pay for these services is only only driving those people with those needs further underground in their own way. I really appreciate a lot of the work I've seen um, other providers and escorts doing as well, even in the form of like I've been hired by other sex workers. Um, I don't know if it weren't so expensive to live out here and I were in a position to do so financially, I would absolutely like hire someone to come play with my partner and I or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be weird. It's just an exchange of things, you know, you pay to do something fun and one way or another, that's like what you're receiving. And I really like seeing all these workers who are just like, Oh, fuck that. There's nothing wrong with, paying for these services. These are awesome services that we offer ourselves. So why not partake if, you know, you have the means? Yeah. I 
that's yeah. why that's why I moved out of Southern California to Kansas City, Missouri, because it's much cheaper to live here. But you know, weather's not quite as nice, and you know, some of the people aren't quite as open-minded. But you know, it's, it's still a good place. <laughs> Yeah, I get that distinct impression from out there. <laughs> so you do have clients and people that you see on a regular basis that you you do know and you know exactly what they want and they're it's it's the regular. It's like, "Oh, what do you want today?" Well, it's the regular. I you know exactly how to make them happy. Yeah. And and that feels really awesome as a service provider in this way because there are people that, you know, the first time you're figuring things out and maybe you have a couple little awkward, like hit a wall moments and you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is where you're at. You're not wanting therapeutic touch and sensual touch. Like you're wanting a more specific thing of just like cuddling or making out, or like I said, drinking tea when it's raining or like stuff like that. And it's like all those other human impulses and needs that get reduced uh, by the way that we're represented and the way that Johns are represented as a bunch of like horny cheapskate scumbags, you know, which accounts for such a, you know, limited portion mm-hmm. of the actual uh, client pool mm-hmm. is out there and there are plenty, but it's, you know, it's not all of them, not by a long shot. Uh-huh. I, I know that home wrecker gets thrown around a lot too as if uh, a man or a woman going outside of a marriage or relationship to see um, to pay for services is somehow indicative of the the person they're paying <laughs> and not them um, but have you ever been with somebody that was doing it in secret and was married or in a relationship um yeah absolutely actually and I feel like, you know, obviously perfect world, these people would be able to communicate their other needs to their partners Mm -hmm. and feel okay about it and things like that. But I have a lot of, a lot of men for clients who are married to women and have children and have probably only more in recent years or obviously since the time of getting married or whatever, like realized or started to kind of self-actualize their fluidity or queerness or whatever they would like to identify it as. Mm -hmm. And that can make for a really interesting time at the very least, because there are these people like, okay, no marks, no like sense or anything that is likely to kind of, you know, ruin my secrecy around these things. And I think you know, obviously, like I said, perfect world, they'd be communicating about it. But I do feel like this is the next best thing. And I feel like hiring a worker is its own form of harm reduction in so many ways. Because we're not going to stigmatize them for being married or being in this relationship or whatever it is. And that's not just because of money, but it's like they're seeking a therapeutic service. And if it's not something that you have access to in your home life, then that makes a married John like barely any different from a single John in in my book. Only that they are feeling a little bit trapped by what they can or can't ask for or needs that they don't feel like they can express, especially with a lot of, you know, rougher or 
like gay type of play Mm -hmm. for people who are in these, you know, generally hetero relationships. I don't know. I just feel like the whole spectrum of power exchange and BDSM can be so formative for a lot of people in discovering their actual selves and who's been hiding away down inside there. Two things that stuck out to me when you were just talking is one, you know, a, a man who's been married all his life as children. I mean, I can't imagine how conflicted he would feel, especially that first time going out and seeking out because he's lived his whole life this one way. Um, and then second, the, the, the other thing that stuck out to me was when you said, you're not the one judging, you're, you're accepting this person and you're trying to provide for them. And it's, it's ridiculous and ironic that the, you know, the provider, the escort, the sex worker is going to be judged more harshly in this situation, yet they're the least judgmental person in the whole situation. Yeah. And that's like such a, a good summary of how the the world and our at least society over here mm-hmm. views us and views what we do is like we're the homewrecker you know and traditionally like homewrecker has been such like a misogynist term already and describing someone who may have entered into a relationship with someone who wasn't honest with them about being in something else already and like it just puts all the blame in those cases like on this woman and we have no idea what their intentions could have been, but it almost becomes irrelevant when that term is invoked and things like that, you know, and there absolutely are some like, according to the term, like home wrecking tendencies that can come, come up with these things, especially when clients start to kind of blur their lines between, okay, this is a service that I offer and then develop actual feelings for you. And it's up to each different worker to determine at what point they will stop seeing someone or things like that. But it is strange how much of the blame gets placed onto us in those situations when if we were a masseuse or something like that, like, I don't know, it just, it's a really foreign notion to me that people can expect one other person to fulfill a lifetime of their needs and still have things like a job and all this other stuff and be just available to you as needed. Yeah, That's such a closed off way of thinking for me. And not to knock anyone who's in monogamous relationships, and I know plenty of people that have them, and they're super healthy and communicative, but the difference is that communication. And I also know monogamous, otherwise monogamous, married couples that routinely will like either buy each other time with workers or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And I just love that (laughs) so much because it's like, the most down to earth and realistic approach that I can think of is just like, okay, yeah, well you really want to do this thing lately and I'm not like super able or interested in doing that. Like, why don't you go do this? This like otherwise pretty sterile transaction as far as like developing attraction and possibly ruining your actual long-term relationship Mm -hmm. is like the least likely out of any other form of, I don't know what you would call cheating. Yeah. And if you were totally open with your partner and they didn't like what something you said, well then should you continue in that relationship? I mean, that's exactly. And if someone's not going to accept you, you know, then I don't know. Yeah. Like for me, that's a very clear picture of what your relationship is actually built off of. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but like I said, lots of guys with children and things like that and not wanting to just become a, a scandal in the neighborhood or the community or like whatever it is that this super stigmatizing approach toward John's has, has created. Yeah. And it, it would be very awkward or just crazy for a man who's been married for say 20, 30 years to tell his wife, um, I think I like men. I mean, I don't know how that relationship goes forward. <laughs> you know, I don't know Absolutely. how. Especially for people who's, you know, are maybe at a point where they realize that they only like men. Yeah. Um, and things like that. And not like, oh, I love you and I love what we have, but I also need to do some exploring or some, you know, dipping my feet in these other pools that I feel like are not available or supported by you. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a really tough balance to try and find, I think, for a lot of people. And I think reaching out to a worker is like the closest thing to victimless cheating, (laughs) you know, although I still think they should be communicating with the partner that they're like transgressing on. Um, It just, this whole notion that, you know, obviously I use victimless like uh, tongue in cheek, but yeah. I mean, because it's still cheating. My wife and I, we have this running joke of what what do we consider cheating? And for a while, you know, she'd say no physical touch. And then we'd make the joke, what if you have a back scratcher and the person was using a back scratcher on you? <laughs> it's like, well, if you're sitting on a bed, you know, in the nude and somebody's using a back scratcher on you, it's probably going to be cheating because there's intent. There's, you know, you're doing something outside of the relationship. But... Exactly, and and it sucks because I see a lot of people in relationships, and I just think, why don't you just tell them? My my wife and I are very open with each other. I mean, I think the first lap dance I ever got in my entire life at a strip club, she got me and paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. To me, a relationship is based on three things, and this is my simplistic view of the world, but it's. The ability to be yourself, 100% be yourself around somebody else, and they still accept you. Two is communication, and you have to be able to tell them pretty much anything, how you feel, what you're feeling. They can tell you these things without judgment, but you have to communicate. And then three is is sex, because I mean, what's the difference between my best guy friend and my wife well it's that sexual attraction it's that what we have together in the bedroom and whether that be asexual or very sexual it's you got to be on the same level or on the same page and that's that's how i pretty much look at relationships myself is those three things and that feels very healthy because people realizing that the only difference in some of these settings is that sexual intimacy or whatever it may be emotional intimacy that maybe people don't share with all of their friends necessarily. And that's just such a big step ahead of where it seems like so many folks are at in the world right now. And, you know, trying to destigmatize these interactions or even these conversations, whether it leads to us getting paid or not, mm-hmm. is just such important work to be doing right now. Yeah. And normalizing telling your partner how the fuck you're feeling is like literally like revolutionary, you know? 
Sometimes I think people just met somebody and they got along while they drank at the bar that night and now they're married and it's 20 years later and they're both sitting back going, what the hell did we do? Why are we here? And I just think, what didn't, didn't you talk this through? (laughs) Exactly. And I've, I've just seen so many people like get hitched right out of high school and then just feel trapped for the rest of their lives. And it's just a really tough thing to deal with. Some people like, you know, it lasts forever and they never actually feel attraction for another person or whatever it is, you know, the whole like nuclear family model. But I just feel like it's not realistic for 99% of the people navigating the world. Well, I mean, I guess we're, we're kind of animalistic and animals aren't especially supposed to be, you know, monogamous, but, but people make it work. That's where humanity and that's where our, uh, where we rise above the mere animal. But I agree with you in saying that, you know, people don't talk about it and they stigmatize it and they make it taboo. And I just think it's normal what we're, everything we just talked about. I, yeah, that's just common sense to me, but not to most people in the world. Yeah. And it's tough, uh, trying to change those minds, you know, but just by plugging along and existing and not being afraid or ashamed of who we are and what we do is, you know, like I said, it feels like valuable work, even if it's just like changing a couple minds here and there through whatever interaction, whether it's online or in person, you know, mm-hmm. it's just to look, normalize, destigmatize yeah. everything we can. I'm flattered that you talk to me because I know that most people pay you by the hour and <laughs> you're talking to me for free. And, but you know, obviously I'm, you know, I'm just trying to destigmatize the situation. I'm trying to let people know, you know, have a better understanding of where other humans are on this planet and, and what they do. And, and they're not aliens to us. So, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I got good vibes from the intentions that you were, describing in our communication and obviously a, a reference from someone else I respect with uh, Kayla Jane. Yeah. It just, you know, it goes a long way and there's always time for conversation around stuff like that with people who aren't going to twist what you said and turn it into the opposite message and stuff like that. So I appreciate having me on either way. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, man. It was, it was wonderful to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me.